think when people think about soul ties, they tend to think about romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. But this even goes back to um, the conversations we've had about intimate friendships. Mm -hmm. And people don't necessarily, you know, consider all of the different connections that they're making, right? What's up, beautiful souls? It's Candy, your spiritual bestie. And I'm finally back with another episode of Real Talk with the Spiritual Bestie. So let's catch up a little bit before we get all the way into this episode. So since the last time that we talked, I got engaged and I've just been consumed with wedding planning stuff. If you've ever planned a wedding, you know how time consuming, frustrating and joyous the whole situation is. So I've just been really like, we're trying to plan a destination wedding. So trying to lock in rates and location and dates, you know, that work for our guests and work for us has just been, you know, this love triangle has just not been happening the way that I expected it to. So it's been taking a lot more of my time than I thought it would. But in the interim of all of that, I was able to break away and go down to Tampa and see my beautiful niece and my nephew who I've missed so much, catch up with my family, catch up with my soul family. And in all that, I was able to link up with the aunties. Now the aunties consist of Malaika, who you heard at the beginning of the episode, and Giovanni, who you'll hear in a little bit. And these two women together bring their knowledge, their experience, and their expertise as only aunties can. I know back in the day when I was younger and I couldn't go talk to my mom about certain things, I would go to my aunties because my aunties had wisdom and they had experience and they weren't afraid to tell me what I really needed to know without going back and telling my mama. So, you know, I look at the aunties in the same way because they hold that same type of space for us. These two women are activists, they're educators, they are creators, they are space holders, they are healers, and so many more things within the community. And I consider it a real honor to have sat down with them and to been able to have absorbed some of their knowledge and wisdom. And I feel like after this episode like I came in kind of heavy from some other stuff that was going on but after I left at the end of this episode I felt lighter and these women are real pillars and gems within the community and so I'm really really excited to share this episode with you guys I hope that you're blessed in the way that I was blessed I hope that your soul is fed in the way that my soul was fed, which is why I'm calling this episode Soul Food. So without further ado, let's get into the chat with the aunties Soul Food episode of Real Talk with the Spiritual Bestie. I think when people think about soul ties, they tend to think about romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. But this even goes back to um, the conversations we've had about intimate friendships. Mm -hmm. And people don't necessarily, you know, consider all of the different connections that they're making, right? And, like, why you will find yourself drawn to certain people or feel like those people are familiar. You know, the difference between uh, what we've been taught a soulmate is, right? Like, this is the person who's going to come into your life and you guys are going to be together forever as a couple. But what about the other soulmates that come into your life? What about the really, you know, good, good friends? Because a lot of times when, you know, if relationships 
are, if they don't work out, if people don't wind up, you know, together for the long haul, the friendships are still there. The friendships are still intact. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times friendship is the first thing that gets abandoned when people get in relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we can definitely, um, I think, still talk about soul ties and just talk about all of the different ways that those come up. Yeah. And even sometimes, I, you're right, because sometimes when it's time to detach or move forward, it is literally like a rip mm-hmm. of the heart. Mm-hmm. I know when my parents were divorced, it literally felt like a death had occurred. Mm-hmm. It does. And it was, I was in mourning for about a year. Yeah really with that situation it really felt like a part of me had died Mm -hmm. and when someone explained it to me like that part of you has died off Mm -hmm. and now it's like losing a limb you know you have to adjust to life without that limb Mm -hmm. and so sometimes you you reach in to pick something up and you realize oh I don't have that hand anymore I can't Mm -hmm. do that I can't function like that um and then that that pain Mm -hmm. and anger a lot of times I feel like we don't channel it properly so then that's when we hit these depressive states Mm -hmm. or we you know damage other relationships which I also dealt with Mm -hmm. in that but what do you feel like um, kind of what have in y'all experience as the aunties (laughs) let me first say Record that the aunties are here. <laughs> Auntie done pulled out her her wand, her handkerchief. <laughs> they done pulled out. Wait, I have to. <laughs> I have to tell everybody the aunties done pulled their handkerchief out the bosoms. It is time. This we 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 are about to get the cultural holy read today with the aunties. So. I mean, can you? I think part of officially being an auntie, like, you have to have a handkerchief. Yes. So, and this handkerchief yes. was gifted to me yes. when I was leaving Memphis uh, yeah. by my great-great-girlfriend, Giovanni. Yeah. And so, yes, I uh, made sure to have my handkerchief with me. I came prepared. So, ladies, since um, we've gotten started, go ahead and introduce yourselves. Kind of tell everybody a little bit about your background, what your what your work is, what your ministry is, and just whatever you want to share. Um, so our official, our public persona is The Aunties yeah. um, of Chat with The Aunties. And um, we are The Aunties. We are community aunties. We are community moms. We are biological moms. We are adoptive and blended and step and half moms. Um, we are co-moms. Bonus moms. Don't forget about bonus, bonus moms. Yes. Uh, we are co-moms. Um, so yeah, I think in just about every aspect of family that women have with one another, we are in some way, shape, form, or combination that. Um, so it is very much an expansive communal experience as opposed to an individualized um, separate experience. So right. um, I can say that we have been in community, um, I guess, for the last seven years. Yeah. And um, 
after what I guess for the last six years, I think we have been very, very, very closely knit together through um, family and community together. We are Giovanni and Maleka. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and so, so okay, so you talk about us, but you didn't talk about you. What is your background, Gia? Um, oh, wow. It's really extensive. I'll say that. That's how you get to be an auntie, right? Right. You have all right? these experiences and go places and do things. And um, so I guess my official title is a scholar, activist, and entrepreneur. And so definitely all of the things that come uh, through those worlds. I think I've taught on just about every level in some capacity um, and, you know, teaching everything from basic life skills to sex ed to all the way up to uh, gender studies, sociology, women's studies, um, African-American studies, uh, everything, all of those things. So, yeah, entrepreneurship, and I am also the... um, Principal consultant for Zenzile's Way Consulting, so a communications consulting firm, and uh, that was um, that's been a real journey of really my heart's work, um, bringing the stories and the voices of, of women of color to the forefront. Um, I definitely started specifically with African American women. Um, and that has grown into um, a much more expansive uh, women of color aspect. Um, a lot of my more recent work has been um, with Asian women and Jewish women. So definitely women of color, um, bringing our voices to the table, bringing our voices to the auditorium, uh, making sure that our stories get told, um, and then uh, navigating the space between those corporate and exclusive worlds and our own intimate private worlds um, through through communications consulting. Um, and then a lot of my activist work has centered around labor. To now, a lot of my activist work um, looks like um, working in the education sector. So um, I'm definitely a member of the Adjuncts United Union. Um, I've done a lot of work with them, a lot of uh, public speaking out about the conditions of educators. Um, And then the other work uh, that also stems from my childhood around uh, reproductive justice, uh, women's rights, uh, women's activism, um, and making sure that women have what they need um, in the health world and in what what living in a just society looks like, specifically for black women and then for women of color. So So I am Malika Salam, Purple Hair and Converse. Uh, hope dealer, self-care evangelist, um, and all of that came out of the work that I think that I have probably been doing my whole life, just being a healer and being that in relation to all of the people that I was around, all the situations that I was in. I come from a very uh, diverse, blended family, and I was just always wanting people to be well because it would be very chaotic and so it was like you know how can I bring calm into this situation and so on the one hand people will say that that is people pleasing and if you look at it that way and you and you you know begin to take that on then it takes the focus off of you right but when you center it around yourself and what you know your innate abilities are then you 
are able to give that much more. And so for me, I can just always remember loving people and wanting people to be well and not always knowing what to do with that. So I'm, I'm an educator. I've been an educator for as long as I can remember when everybody else wanted to play house, I wanted to play school. And I always had supplies. <laughs> I always had pens. I always had books. I always had journals. I was always collecting those things. Um, I'm a writer. I've been a writer my entire life. And in a way where I really just wanted to, to chronicle what was going on around me, to tell the stories about what was going on around me, the way that I saw them, because I always saw them very colorfully. Um, and it didn't necessarily take a lot of embellishment because it's what was happening and it's the way that mm -hmm. I was processing it. So I've always been a storyteller, I think in a griot tradition. And then also, you know, just merging in how, you know, telling the story, how having voice, bringing your stories to the table is a part of our healing. Because so much of what we're told is in our community, the way that we function, right, is that we don't tell our stories to outside people. Mm -hmm. What goes on in our house stays in our house. Don't go tell our business to other people. But there's so much healing in being able to talk about things and being able to process things. Really how Chat with the Aunties got started was it was just conversations that we were having. And we realized that we were having these conversations with each other. But then we were also having these conversations with other women that we were relative to. And we were like, so clearly people are talking about this. Maybe we just need to talk about this publicly to give people a space where we can hold space for them and have these conversations. I miss my so. space. <laughs> we're, I we're, we are, And we're talking about it. Um, Again, sometimes, you know, life just happens and you, you step back and you're like, okay, what is happening? So for me this year, it was going back into the classroom and teaching full time, which was not at all, you know, what my plan was. Am I educated? Yes. Everywhere I go, I'm going to, I'm going to be educating. I'm going to be sharing, you know, the information with people. Um, but I never really saw myself doing it in an organized way. And then the opportunity happened at the same time I got accepted into a master's program for mental health. And it was like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to go get your master's degree? Or are you going to go into the classroom? Well, it makes sense, right? It seems logical. You go get your master's degree, you become a therapist, a counselor, you go somewhere and you make money. Um, but I stepped into the classroom and the day I stepped into the classroom, it was like, oh, okay, this is exactly where I'm this supposed is exactly to be. What this it is. is my coursework, right? Because that's what happens. Like when you're a healer, it's not, a, it's not always about where the money is. And let me say this because there are a lot of people who are doing work that don't have a lot of money. And I think that part of that is a mindset and we can definitely talk about that. But I think, you know, we're programmed to think you're not supposed to want money. You're supposed to want to do it just for, of, right, just, just for the sake of right, just for the sake of doing yourself. it. Listen, Duke Energy <laughs> doesn't doesn't they take my positive energy right. <laughs> to keep my lights running. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't just about you know the money. It was also about how do I want to make my money? Like I want to make money, and I want to be I want to have abundance in my life. I also want to do it in a way that's meaningful to me and that goes to my highest calling and what's my highest good. And so what keeps aligning for me is education and healing, education and healing. So being in a classroom with babies who not only need to learn how to read because I was teaching intensive reading, but babies who need to be loved and cared for was an opportunity for me to practice that, that nurturing and that healing piece. And so it's like, I didn't have to do 
that counseling piece in the classroom. And, you know, I was doing it practical every day, real time. And I think that for me, that's how things develop. They just develop organically. So so all of that is is in there. All of that is Malika Salam. And it's about the freedom. You know, at the end of the day, we want the money because the money provides the freedom. It provides the ability to do the other things that we want to do aside from just working. So I totally feel you on that. How do you find the balance in your life? What are some of your self-care self -care, um, tools and practices? Well, I'll say that the reason that we are able to be here now and operate the way that we operate now is a direct result of what we have both learned and put into practice about balance and self-care and then relationship. Yeah. Um, so it really has been a process of learning what self-care looks like for us individually. So like we both do spiritual self-care and spiritual maintenance work. We use our planners, you know, those are definite parts of our lives. And so, you know, the same thing with physical care, you know, um, I have a yoga practice that I do every morning. Malika goes to the gym occasionally. So, you know, we do things that are in, um, and she talked about counseling earlier, um, so those seven areas of wellness that counselors Listen, I don't <laughs> use. Go um, anywhere we do without work. my wheel. Yes, I love the wheel. Right. I tell um, everybody about the wheel. Yes. Like that is that's that's it, right? Yeah, there. yeah, that's how we keep our balance. We are all doing something in these seven areas. We're both doing things in those areas and they may look very different, but we're making sure that we have all of those areas as a part of our daily self care, weekly self care, monthly self care. You know, we have our own check in points and check in practices. We have our own um, daily practices, but the biggest Thing is that we focus on this will and how we need to use that in our lives. So, and the points on the will are spiritual, emotional, intellectual, physical, social, environmental, financial. Mm -hmm. So, in some form or another, each of those areas needs daily attention. Mm -hmm. yeah. When I neglect, I suffer in some in some way. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so. How, with the work that you do, Giovanni, how do you find, how do you give the voice to women of color? Um, and at the same time, I feel that a lot of times when the voices of the women of color are being, um, you know, elevated and we're speaking out on things that are real for us, people get offended with the work that you do because it's multicultural. Mm -hmm. Your work is not just exclusive, as all of our work mm -hmm. is not just exclusive to women of color, but we come from an experience as women of color, people of color. Mm -hmm. um, how do you all find that balance in allowing the voices to be heard and also um, helping to bridge the gap, I guess, between the mm -hmm. cultures? when those are sensitive topics, sensitive moments? So I actually, if you don't mind, I want to respond to that because that is definitely something that um, I have encountered recently in the school room, in the classroom, and then just also in uh, relationships, right? Um, 
one, I think it's important to understand that when it comes to bridging the gaps, it is a lot of times what happens when the voices of women of color are amplified, we're kind of conditioned to try to, to tamp it down, to measure it out, to uh, respond with respectability. And I think it's super important that we remember where the focus is. The focus is on that person's voice. And the focus is on that person being heard. Like we all want to be heard. And in order for a person to be heard, you don't have to not acknowledge what somebody else's experience is. We just have to remember to center this person's experience. This person's experience is not a personal attack on anybody. This person's personal experience is not to say that you are less than. This is my experience. These are my words. This is how I experience it. And I think so often people take things, they forget that agreement about don't take things personally. Like one of the four agreements is don't take things personally. That's the one that I had the hardest time with because as soon as somebody says anything that resonates for me or or gloms on to something else I've experienced, then all of a sudden now it's a personal thing. Now you're saying that this culture is better or this, you know, there's, you know, these disparities and I don't believe that. And now I feel it's a personal attack. So I think we have to make sure that we are, you know, constantly remembering to center the voice and keep the attention where it belongs. And we need to hear people, right? We need to not just listen waiting for our opportunity to respond to it or to make our counterpoint. And we really need to listen to what people are saying. What is it that you want me to hear? What is it that you need me to know? Not what is it that I need to respond to because I feel a way. I made a statement um, amongst some other ladies about the experience as being a woman of color. The issue that I find is that then when you try to create the dialogue, it would have been a great opportunity really for that dialogue for us to understand each other where, because we don't live in each other's shoes. We mm. can only try to empathize and understand each other's experiences and give respect to that and honor each other's um, emotions and each other's thoughts. Mm -hmm. But I had to kind of have a moment where I checked in with myself to say, I am not responsible for what my ex what emotions my experience and me sharing that experience draw up in somebody else. Right. Mm -hmm. right. But you know, I feel that a lot of times when we tr do try to bridge those gaps, sometimes the doors close. Like, just leave it alone. We don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that I think that's a common experience, and I'll address it um, a little bit differently than Malika addressed it. You know, I am very comfortable with and have no problems that I am a black woman. <laughs> and black woman and woman of color are two different things. You know, there are some shared aspects of that. And then there are aspects that vary wildly. Just like among black women, there are some shared aspects and then some aspects that vary. Um, and I start at that point, you know, I'm a, I'm a black woman and I'm a black woman from the South. And I'm a black woman that comes from a very... Um, religious, Christian, specifically Baptist tradition. Um, and so there are lots of things that are similarities and then there are things that are differences. Um, and so I'm okay with that. And I think that's where the start is, like being okay with who you are, where you are, what you show up with, um, where you come from, and that being the starting point. Because for me, that's my starting point. 
um, that I'm 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 a hundred percent okay with who I am and where I'm coming from, and I can offer X Y Z because of my experiences to other people who may have had similar experiences, and so I think that's an important aspect to address, um, especially with the part about respectability that Malika touched on, um, that we live in a society that is built around those ideas of respectability, but at the same time has very clear passes for certain groups of people in regards to that respectability. And so for me, it's just about being honest about that. Like, yeah, we know that there are different sets of rules. We know that there are different um, guidelines around appearance, um, but that does not um, take away from how we show up and what we have to contribute. Because mm-hmm. um, in reality, we know that that our differences and our being away from those guidelines is often our strength. You know, those are often survival mechanisms mm-hmm. for us. It doesn't work for us to try to adhere to some of those um, mainstream guidelines. So um, that's kind of the approach that I take. You know, what what is the, the value here and what value does that contribute? And what is the message here? And there are people... Um, of all races, creeds, social economic classes, et cetera, that need to hear the messages around the work that we both do. And so even though this work that we do in all aspects, right, comes from a particular set of experiences, we still have something to contribute. And it is valuable. Like what we have to contribute is valuable. It is needed, it is necessary. And then it is especially necessary as black women and for women of color, because those are the voices in the society that we live in that have been silenced, that have been you know, pushed away, that have been you know, muffled, covered, whatever you wanna call it. Um, and so that's kind of my starting point. Like that's, that's my starting point. I made a post the other week about creating safe spaces for our men within our community Mm -hmm. because I feel like it's kind of been this teeter. In one aspect, you know, the women's voices have been silenced within the community and then it's like we haven't quite, I feel like, found that balance where I see us getting there to where we're able to heal within the community, um, our relationships with our brothers and our sisters. I see the sisters have really, over the last couple of years especially, began to come together more. Mm-hmm. And we've um, rebonded ourselves in sisterhoods and done sisterhood circles. We did one of those. Mm-hmm. And just, um, I feel that I see it happening. You know, you see it kind of coming back together. But um, do can you guys speak a little bit on uh, um, these safe spaces and maybe how, um, with y'all experience and your knowledge of ha- of now being the honorable auntie. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I want to put that on the honorable auntie. But um, what do you yeah. see as safe spaces? How do we create these safe spaces for our brothers even to be this, emotional? Yeah, we've yeah. had this conversation a few times because we do because we do women's work, we have so much access to, you know, all of the t- a, a multitude of tools for healing, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the circles and we have the books and we have, you know, Auntie Ayamla and we have, you know, Practices. access. And mm-hmm. so we are, we, you know, we're always coming together in different ways and figuring out what works. And so one of the questions that, that comes up for me regularly is, 
you know, where is this space for men? We can hold space for men. And this is this is my judgment. We can hold space for men. We cannot speak to men in the same way because we don't have that shared experience, right? Mm-hmm. So there are certain things that are common to all of us that are community-wide. There are certain generational things. There are certain cultural things. Um, but when it comes to things that are specific to men, that's just a place that we can't necessarily go with them. We can hold space, but we can't... I don't, I don't judge that we have all of the components to be able to create space for that. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I'm, we've, and we've had this conversation, we've taken it to Facebook, we've talked about it with the men in our lives. So this is something that actually comes up for us on a regular basis. I talked to my fiance about that too. He's like, y'all can't create safe spaces for us. No, I don't think we can create safe spaces. I think we can hold space for them. I think that as we discover things, one of the things that I do um, the men in my life, I am very aware of what's going on with them. And and as I uh, do research, you know, looking for um, different spaces that they can interact with, you know, looking for different, on social media, looking for different accounts, finding different books, connecting them with that, and then letting them, you know, take that as they need to and make it their own and create their own practices around it. Um, but yeah, I don't know that we can create those spaces, not in a, not authentically. We can, I used to say this, um, raising a son as a single mother, I could raise the best man I could conceive of. And so that all comes with all of the things that I had and all of the things that I didn't have, right? I want him to be this type of man because these are the attributes that I saw that I admired. And I want him to be this type of man because these are the attributes that I saw in other people that I didn't admire. And I I don't want that to manifest in him. And at the end of the day, it was very, I was very deliberate in surrounding him with men where he could see that, men where he could experience that. Because otherwise, this is mom's creation and this is what mom sees. But mom doesn't have the shared experience. She's not, you know, walking the same walk that I am. So if I, you know, say something to her, she's going to explain to me from the way that mom sees it as a woman, as a protector, as a nurturer versus being able to talk to another black man who's having a same or similar experience or has some experience or can connect me with somebody, you know, who has that experience. So I was very deliberate in making sure that he was connected with men that he could have, you know, these conversations with because I can only tell him what I can conceive right. of as a man, but right. I don't have the ability to create that for him because it's not my lived experience. Exactly. I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. And um, even in having that conversation with my fiance, what I gathered, because men are emotionally wired differently. We'll get in a sister circle and ball our eyes out. <laughs> and But typically men aren't going to um, grieve in the same way. And so I think after having that conversation with him and also, you know, what you just said, that affirms that we just need to hold those spaces for them and be available. And then when we see the tools that may be helpful to them, just um, present them to them. I, um, I'm glad you asked that question. And I, I immediately thought about how all the times uh, Malika and I would pose that question openly to crickets or to, you know, just maybe two or three responses if it was online. And um, when you asked that question, it brought up for me, I just finished reading 
our lovely Auntie Iyamla's um, Peace from Broken Pieces. And that book is 10 years old, but when that book came out, I was not ready to read it. Um, and one of the things that she talks about in that book is about how she wrote um, her other book, which was for men, Spirit of a Man. And it was a self-help, self-care, transformational healing book for men, and it did not do well at all. And so she talked about her disappointment that she was seeing all of these women come and get something from the books that she was publishing, the talks that she was doing, and to have this book that was specifically directed towards men to do so poorly um, sales-wise. And, you know, she said this, this was just proof to me that our Black men were not engaged or seeking the self-care and healing and transformations that black women were doing so you're absolutely right when you say when you said earlier you know women are doing all of this work um but what does that mean for our counterparts right you know are, are they going to be ready to deal with these highly evolved women <laughs> that they that they now are are in you know are are coexisting with and um, that is definitely an issue and a challenge. And I thought that when she wrote that and she was willing to say that and document that and say, hey, there is an issue here because we do see and hear all of the negative outcomes um, for men in general and especially for black men. And so um, I think it's important to say that there are men doing this healing work. Um, Malika talked about that. Um, I follow um, a few men who are counselors, therapists, yogis, you know, who are doing this work and being visible about mm -hmm. it. So that, you know, if you go on Instagram or if you go on Facebook or Snapchat or whatever, you can see, oh, this man is, you know, yeah. doing yoga and he's, this man is meditating and this man is talking about what happened when he, you know, allows this spiritual care that, that he's engaged in to happen. So um, I think that's an important part is that we support the men who are doing that work mm -hmm. and, and see them. Not support them in the sense of let me go and fix everything for you, mm -hmm. but see them and say, oh, I see, see them and hear them work. and validate and, those emotions. Right, right. So again, I think that it's, you know, super important what you just said about because that is not creating the space that is holding the space and also understanding what support looks like mm -hmm. not going in with when, when we're supporting each other you know because we do things differently we say well what does support look like for you mm -hmm. but a lot of times because as women we've been trained to do things we've been conditioned to do things a certain way we immediately go into nurturing mode we mm -hmm. immediately go into caretaking mode right fix it Mama right, fix right. It. And right. That's, that, that's exactly why <laughs> yeah. I said not going yes. in to fix it. Instead, saying, I see you, I see what you're doing, you know, keep up the good work, right. you know, and maybe I'm going to direct some other, hey, you should check out that guy over yeah. there, you know, to, to some of my, my male counterparts. And I'm in the same boat with Malika. I was a single parent for, you know, most of my children's childhood, and I have sons. And I have, you know, my sons have a half-brother, and my sons have a step-brother. So I have sons, no matter how you slice it, right? Uh, there there are four different boys who are in some way, shape, form, or fashion um, under my care at any, any time. 
And for me, it was the same thing. It was never about, I'm going to make you into a man or teach you how to be a man. It was, I want you to be a functional, healthy adult that is kind, caring, and responsible. And so I really focused on the values aspect. Like, you know, are these the kinds of things that you want to be? You know, are these the kinds of, of people you want to be around? Are these the kind of, cho- you know, mm-hmm. making good choices? And one of my other good friends, she's also a single mom with sons. You know, she that's her thing every morning morning make good choices you know so it's not about you know I'm going to make you into this kind of man it's about I want you to be a person who can go out into the world and function and function in ways that are going to be um uh that are going to allow you to pour into your life and not take away from you and so for me that was really um it and then I did the same thing like I found men that I loved, cared for, admired, saw something of value in, and made sure that my sons had access to those men. And then once they had that access, they were very much able to drive how that relationship worked. You know, that just them having people like right there in their community, as well as in our families, um, that they could talk to, go to, you know, be in community with. Um, and I think that's really... Um, what we have to do, you know, we have to allow them to decide, you know, in the what most their healing looks what, like. what their healing looks like, just mm-hmm. like they have to decide what kind of man they're going to be, yeah. you know. And I think beyond allowing it, again, it goes back to creating space. Mm-hmm. One of my acts of self care is letting go of the need to control things, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So yes. when I yes. when I need to control things then my anxiety is higher because Mm -hmm. if this doesn't work out this way, then this is going to go and this is going to go and it's not, you know what I'm saying? So now I'm freaked out because everything not going according to my plan, right? (laughs) It it may not go according to my plan and that's going to throw everything off. But when I allow myself, when I give myself permission to step back and not be in control, to trust that people are doing their self-care, which is making the best decisions for themselves, and that may not look like what I had in mind, then I'm far less stressed, I'm far less anxious, right? And so it, so that is the same thing with the men in our lives. Like, I can show up to support you, and I can give you room and create space and hold mm-hmm. space for you to do what is best for you, what is going to be your best practice. I think the other thing is, because we live in this age of technology, a lot of what happened with, you know, men having their, you know, auxiliary groups or their elk the clubs or their lodges <laughs> or whatever, right, was um, was very contained to certain groups of people. Like, everybody didn't have access to it. Mm-hmm. One of the beautiful things about technology is that it allows us to connect with people who we might not otherwise know. It's how we met. Exactly. It's, you know, it's you you have this ability to, to connect with people and you know, form real relationships. And so what I'm seeing now is that more of my male friends are coming out and talking about therapy. More of them are saying, you know, oh, it's Wednesday, I'm on the couch. And they're, they're engaging people. And I think be, that takes away, part of it is it destigmatizes it, right? Like there are all kinds of ways that you can get the help you need. And probably everybody needs therapy, especially us, because as a community, we are still dealing with this trauma of, of the culture. You know what I'm saying? We're still dealing with generational trauma. We're still dealing with the epigenetics, the stuff that's just in our DNA that's been passed down that we didn't have any control over. And so when you see these men doing this, it's like, okay, so this destigmatizes therapy, not just therapy 
for black women, not just, you know, us going into our circles and, and talking to people because we're emotional. But this says it's okay for men to be emotional. It's okay for you to discuss the issues that they're ha- that you're having. It normalizes us getting help. And so I think that there are all of these, I, I follow quite a few accounts, same as Giovanni. I see now that there's more visibility. They're able to see more black men doing these things and functioning in different ways. And they're able to see the same thing with the will. So they're able to see the intellectual. They're able to see the emotional. They're able to see the physical. I remember when being a vegan was like the weirdest thing a person <laughs> could do, let alone being a black vegan. Like black people aren't vegans because we, we eat meat. Like okay. we eat all the meats. <laughs> Culturally, right. where did that come from? It came from, you know, being given the scraps, having to work with what you had. But but also when but we're also farmers. We're also agriculturalists. You know what I'm saying? So we've always been doing this. Grandma was always growing some type of herb. Right. Grandma always knew, you know, what dirt to mix with whatever to mm-hmm. make the salve. Because we're people of the earth. So it's like you're seeing all of these things coming back and they're not they're not brand new practices. We're just more people now have access to them mm-hmm. because of the technology. They're they're becoming more readily available. Mm-hmm. So I think what's happening is that those spaces that that, you know, women have been able to create are now we're starting to see them mirrored because of the availability. Yeah, and so. we've always been um, the innovators and starters of the trends within our homes. Mm-hmm. And the holders. Well, like, and the holders we're holding. Of, yes. Those are yeah. cultural practices we're holding. You know, like like I said, the aunties have always had gardens in their backyards. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember my great aunt used to keep me when I was a kid and I knew when I came in the house if it was a nice day, I had to go to the back because she was going to be in the garden you know pulling up something I or feel like I'm something. turning into an auntie y'all saying all these things and it's but a couple I mean, of things that I'm doing culture. yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean even if we don't act on it you know I don't have a backyard garden but I am definitely a plant lady like mm-hmm. I have all of the plants so yes. yeah absolutely but I think that's uh we had a conversation about this not that long ago about aunties and the importance of aunties to the culture and it's like mm-hmm. you know now there's this auntie culture that's growing and you know everybody everybody's some type of auntie you right, see the t-shirts right. the young we went to essence fest the, and everybody had yeah. their auntie t-shirts right there mm-hmm. whatever their descriptor was and it's like but yeah that's how it's always been i i would not have known about certain spiritual practices outside of kind of the basic tenets that my family followed on one side with, you know, Catholicism and Christianity, on the other side with Islam, if it hadn't been for my aunt who practiced Tai Chi and who was doing meditation and who was into Eastern religion, I would not have, you know, considered going to a Buddhist temple when I was younger or, you know, getting prayer beads um, so that I could so that I could chant and so that I could meditate. Like, I would not have had access to that if it hadn't been for my cool, you know, eccentric auntie. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have known what I know about sewing and gardening if it hadn't have been for my other auntie. I wouldn't have known about certain earth medicines if it hadn't been for my other aunties. So there's all types of aunties and we Mm -hmm. all definitely have that spirit coursing through us. And so when it starts to come back around, like there's no... There's no age limit to it. There's the right. there's the cool young hip auntie. Everybody mm-hmm. had that one auntie that knew all the trends. Her hair was always done. What? She like knew all the so dances. so yeah. We go through the we go through the phases of of being an auntie, and I think it's really just like you're an auntie. You just 
embrace it. You embrace where you are at right. in auntiehood. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. Where do we see um, our community going right now with the current just climate and trend? What do we need um, maybe to see more of or how can we individually hold better space within our community for the healing to continue and for um, all of this blending that we see now culturally. We see a lot of like um, family blending that's occurring. So how do we continue to really hold space and just be supportive and still pass our stories along to the next generation? I'll, I'll start with what I'm, I'm glad that I'm seeing and that I would like to see more of. I love that I'm seeing, um, in fact, this is one of the the topics I'm gonna be doing some writing about this summer, but I love that I'm seeing black women reclaim their health, their wellness, and especially um, the birth and the birthing experience. Yes. I love that I'm seeing so many um, black lactation consultants. You know, I, when 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 we were young moms, nobody was breastfeeding, and you know, I remember going places and getting no support for breastfeeding. And you know, I remember the people that did support me were not people from my community. Um, but I'm really glad I'm seeing more and more women reclaim the power of their bodies through the functions of our bodies because we've been detached from that you know for many many generations our bodies were of use to other people and we could not claim how we wanted to use our bodies so i'm really glad i'm seeing more black birth workers more black lactation consultants more black doulas more black midwives i love that i also love that i'm seeing more black farmers um black agriculturalists because even you know if you don't have land i've got i know people who have these windowsill farms or they're doing the vertical growing um you know in in a city apartment or something so i love that i'm seeing us reclaim our health i love seeing us reclaim you know root work uh hoodoo african traditional religions um african spirituality systems global spirituality systems um i love that i'm seeing us reclaim making, creating, Um, you know, I think about the simple things like, you know, beading and jewelry, um, but also the things that we've always been creating, like hairstyles and makeup styles and nail styles and dress styles and clothing styles. Um, I'm really glad that we're doing more creative work um, in all genres. And I'm really glad to see us taking advantage of the moment now that allows us to do that. I'm really glad we're podcasting and talking mm-hmm. about these things. I'm really glad people can do YouTube tutorials. You know, I'm glad that I'm seeing people use technology to connect with people, people who are, you know, we're we're spoiled and lucky and kind of over it in the sense that we live in the South and there are plenty of black people here, so we don't have to worry about finding communities. But there are black folks in random places <laughs> where there aren't other black folks and they can connect um, through technology. And still so, have community right, that way. Right. So those are the things that I see. Those are the things that I'm glad I'm seeing. And those are the things we need more of for me. I, I think that we're in a real Sankofa space right now. I mm-hmm. think what we're seeing is not uh, brand new. Like everybody's acting like this is so new. Like, oh, when did people start 
you know, getting into to hoodoo. Like, that's what, you know, old women do. Like, it's like, like they're old now. Right. And it's right. like, it's right. like, you're the but, old lady now. Right. But, like, but, but, like, these things have always been around. They have always existed. When we started integrating, part of the agreement of integration was that we had to give up some of our traditions. So what I'm very mm-hmm. happy to see is people returning back to their natural state of being. So we're not doing anything that's um, necessarily groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. We're, it's, it's groundbreaking because it's been pushed mm-hmm. to the back for so long. It's been hidden for so long. It's been kept from us. So you have all of these people who are out here being spiritual practitioners. We're talking about new thought, new age. And I'm like, my grandma was listening to Reverend Ike when I was little. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So I go into a new age, you know, a new thought place and I see Reverend Ike on the bookshelf and I'm like, Rev, but my grandma been listening to that. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this is not, this is not new to me. So, you know, the magic is not new. The hoodoo, the voodoo, those things have always existed. I'm glad that we're reclaiming them. I'm glad that we are in this space where we are willing to take a look back and see what worked and bring that forward with us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's especially necessary now because there is such an attack on us. There is such an attack on our ways. This, And I've said this from the beginning, when people started being all witchy online, I was like, you know, I don't have a problem with it. I'm good because now there's access to information that we didn't have access to for a long time. And people need to take advantage of it because when they shut it down, it's not going to be available. So don't just rely on what you saw on the computer. Mm -hmm. Don't just rely on the podcast. When you listen to this podcast, take out your notebook, take notes. If you weren't taking notes, go back to the beginning of the podcast and take notes so you can get these gems that were dropped. Because one day when they take it away, you need to have that written down so that you're Mm -hmm. able to pass it on to your babies. So that's, that's what I hope that we take away from this this part of the cultural revolution that we're in, that we remember to write it down, that we remember to pass it on, that we remember mm-hmm. to keep those traditions alive so that when black vegans pop up, nobody is surprised because black folks been making vegetables and gardens out of what they had for years. For years, taking we've the been, scraps and just throwing listen, them in the dirt. Listen, we've done that with everything. Scroll. We've done that with quilting. So you can go to, you know... I'm not going to call any corporate names, but you can go to a store and take a class and pay hundreds of dollars for quilting. But your grandmama and your great auntie's been quilting for years. And had you just sat down with them, they would have gladly showed you everything that they knew. So make sure that we are keeping those traditions alive. Make sure that you're passing it on to somebody. Make sure that even if you're not a, a, a auntie, um, by blood, that you're an auntie by bond, that you're going out and creating those bonds with other young women, and it's not new to them, that this is just the way things are. I love that. That's beautiful. Can you both name a few of like your foundational books that have changed your life? Because I think that with the age of technology, how <laughs> much time do I we mean, actually have to answer this question? We have right, you have, to, you, have to give, you have to give people like us limits because yes. all we do is like no, the research. But that's the thing. Uh, I think with the age of technology, a lot of people. I got excited. We got excited. excited. So, I'm passionate. <laughs> right, right. This is how we feel about the books. Right, right, right. Um, so I think like now with the technology age, we see a lot of, even in libraries, they're getting rid of books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're going all digital. They're getting rid of books. So yeah. I love going down to the little bookstores and yeah. buying the books for 50 cents because some of those books have really impacted me. I got The Four Agreements 
um, out of a bookstore for 50 cents. Mm -hmm. And one of the most impactful books Mm -hmm. that I've picked up over, I would say, probably the last 10 years. So what are, and you can feel free, but what are some books that foundationally um, for us within the culture are some must-reads, must-haves? Before we start answering that, I'm going to preface this with two things. One, I saw a beautiful photo from a library, I think it was in Germany, but the the trash collectors just started saving the books that they found in the trash, and they built their own library out of books that people had just thrown away. Mm-hmm. So it was this huge library created by garbage men who had collected books that people had thrown out. The second thing I'll say is even though we have this technology, um, people have ebooks, people have audiobooks, the data shows that people still prefer physical books. Yes. So I always try to I want people to not move too fast. I tried yeah. to bring a book, but I couldn't because my bag was stuffed and I had two books in my hand. So I couldn't bring the third book. So I will say that even though we have the technology and people think that books are fleeting, people still love and want their books. Yeah. So don't be so fast to, and this is to the listeners, you know, don't be so mm-hmm. fast to throw out your books just because there are new formats for those books to be in. Um, so that's the first thing I'll preface it with. And I'll let my like it I was going to say, and I want to just piggyback on that because um, it's the thing that I got passionate about before. At some <laughs> point, all of this stuff goes away. At mm-hmm. some point, they lock the books away in a library that only certain people have access to. At some down. point, they... They burn the libraries. They burn the books. At some point, when they don't want you to have access to the knowledge you anymore, have to have it here. they mm-hmm. shut it down. So I've been collecting books for my entire life. I have books that are older than my children. Mm-hmm. Those books travel with me. I have a set of books in Memphis because I had to dismantle 20 years of life to move here. And when you come to my house now, I have two new libraries at my house because I've been collecting books in the four years that I've been here. There's never a time that I will not take an opportunity to collect a book. I have an active library card. use the library on a regular basis. I make sure my children use the library on a regular basis. I go to the book sales because those books that are 50 cents that you're getting one day will be obsolete because they will take away our ability to read what they don't want us to read and what they don't want us to know. So books are an important part of our culture. They are an important part of our history and preserving history. So like Giovanni said, don't sleep on the books. Like get the books, put the books in your library because they will not always be readily available. Mm-hmm. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah, that's that's fact. And we've seen it happen before, right? Go go ask some people from Egypt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, go ask some people um, from, you know, pre, pre-modern era Europe. You know, mm-hmm. libraries have been burned, are burned. You know, things are destroyed. Um, we saw just this last election cycle that people will put out false information. Mm-hmm. Um, and you cannot verify it because you now don't have the books. You don't know the history of the relationship between this country and that country because the books that detail that history have been destroyed. So now you have to listen to whatever a talking head Some is telling you. Right. Um, it, and it's funny, we talked about planners. And there was an article in the Wall Street was the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post. Um, that said the trendy new way to plan that millennials are taking up. And it was about paper planners. And I was like, but Franklin Planner was 
it's named after Benjamin Franklin. Like clearly, people have been using planters since Benjamin Franklin, at least. So how can this be trendy and new? So yeah, um, because it's it's the resurgence, right? They recycle things and they make it they make it this new innovation. Because also, when we think that something is a trend, when we think being a vegan is a trend, when we think being healthy is a trend, then people jump on the bandwagon as part of a trend, and they know that there will be an end to it so this cycle will end and people will get into something else mm-hmm. when you don't see it as a trend when you see this as a part of your lifestyle mm-hmm. as a part of the way that you want to Thread live it makes the difference because then you're going to continue those practices long after the trend is died mm-hmm. out absolutely so books so books okay so I'll say this I had figured out by the time I was in the 8th grade that the teachers were just never going to give us any books or assignments on books by black people. Okay. That was that was my experience in school. Who was your first exposure? Um, like as far as So so I'll say that I always had books because I always loved to read. Um, we used to have a black book fair that would come to Memphis and it would be all these publishers from all over the country and they would go from city to city having this black book fair. And so we would always get black books. Um, And then I had an aunt in Chicago who was an educator, and so she would always make sure we had um, black books. Um, And then my mom had a friend who worked for a children's book publisher. And so whenever she would get um, things that came from black book publishers, because she was a Jewish woman, she would send me the black books that came from her, her free samples and things. So I always was always surrounded by um, black books. Um, but by, like I said, by the time I got to eighth grade, I realized we weren't going to ever have it at schoolwork, right? It was fine to do at home. It was fine at the library, but you were never going to get to bring this into the classroom. And so I really made it a point to, at that time, our public library would put a little red, black, and green flag mm-hmm. on the bottom of the black interest, African-American interest books. So those were the books I just started getting. And I will say the first book that I read that was it, that was pivotal and all the way up to now was Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Birds mm, That was my book, now, too. Now, that one I got off my yes. mom's nightstand because I was a snoop. And when I had run out of things to read, I would go in her room and look for things to read. So she had that one, so I got that one, read it, life-changing. Mm-hmm. That was um, my book. That was my first. Yes. That I remember. Yes, that one was major. Ended up reading the rest of the series, mm-hmm. and I have a good, dear, dear brother friend, and even to this day, um, we talk about the incident where Maya Angelou lost her baby, mm-hmm. and uh, she had asked us like, to keep her baby, and she was gone for a month, and when she got back, the, the, the lady had moved. And she didn't know where this woman was. This woman had her baby. She goes into a panic. Eventually tracks the woman down at the new address, gets her baby back. So we always joke and say, you know, if Maya Angelou could lose her baby for a whole month, (laughs) surely, and and still be Maya Angelou, (laughs) surely whatever failures, crimes, sins we've committed will be forgiven and we can still be successful. We're going to be all right. Right. So definitely (laughs) I know why the cage bird sings, but I would always recommend the whole trilogy, the autobiography. Um, the second one, and this is one of the African American interests, was The Bluest Eye mm-hmm. by Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, now as an adult, 
It means I think something like as so a, different. As a 13 year old, I had no business reading that book. I don't even know how they let me check it out of the library. Yeah, because but it looks like it's a children's It looks like book. a little girl. Like it's a little girl on the cover. So, of course, a little girl could read this. Um, it goes to show how much they but, were reading. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so I, so those were the two first ones from summer of seventh and eighth grade. Um, and then I will say the next one was 10th grade and that was, uh, Bell Hooks, Black Looks and, um, her first book. Um, but yes, but it was, it was Bell Hooks. I had gone to a screening of Daughters of the Dust at University of Memphis and that was the start of it. Talking Back, that's the name of it. It was, that was the one that was Talking Back and it was Black Looks. And um, I read those two, and even to this day, I now finally have all of her books, so they're at the very top of my shelf. But those two were foundational, because Black Looks talked about how Black people were represented culturally, and how Black culture had been taken from as a part of this American culture. And then um, uh, Talking Back, Thinking Feminist, Thinking Black was literally talking back to the feminist movement mm-hmm. about, again, those spaces where black women have been excluded, left out, rejected, etc. So those two were definitely, those. that set of four, um, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, The Bluest Eye, Black Looks, and uh, uh, Talking Back, were those were my, my four early foundation ones, the ones that really shaped and molded me, I think, politically and as a woman. So for me, I'm going to say the Bible first, like, like get you a Bible, get you a good King James Bible like your grandma had and read it for yourself. Like that's why that's foundational. Um, So much of what we hear from the Bible is pieces that people take and use to support what it is that they're doing mm-hmm. like the bible was used to um for years it, it was used to condone slavery mm-hmm. and so it's like but when you read it for yourself when you understand you know where spare the raw spoil the child comes from where you understand uh what hope means like when you get that understanding for yourself it changes your perspective a lot of what we know about the bible we've gotten from other people we've Mm -hmm. been programmed to believe it and see it a certain way Mm -hmm. so i think it's important that everybody has their own bible Mm -hmm. and that they read it for themselves and that they do the research that they do the cultural research so that they understand that those practices that that were going on back then do not necessarily look like the practices that are happening now so that they understand that when you know somebody is reading the bible and they're interpreting it that that's their interpretation that they don't have to own it like do mm-hmm. get the bible and do the work yourself mm-hmm. so that's a uh, number one foundational piece um when my grandmother passed one of my cousins was completely lost because she was like I just realized I've never read the Bible. Like everything, I I don't even feel like I need to read it. Like everything I know about the Bible, I learned from, you know, mommy and granny. And I was like, girl, like that's not okay. Like (laughs) at some point you have to to do the work yourself. (laughs) So so I would say uh, the Bible. Foundationally, um, outside of the Bible, there's one book that I I just recommend everybody to read, Black Women, Women of Color. Um, even, Even for white women, it works. I've seen it. Um, Iyanla Van Zandt, One Day My Soul Just Opened Up. Mm-hmm. I recommend that book highly. Like, mm-hmm. like when I'm coaching people with my own daughters, they have their copies. Um, it's 40, you know, 40 days and 40 nights, but 
those 40 days and 40 nights are not necessarily linear time. Sometimes it may take you a week to, to get one of those things down. Your 40 days and your 40 nights may look completely different from anybody else's, but the truths that are held in that book are so like important and, and, and they will resonate with you where you are at. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's why that book is like super important. Like when we talk about self help and and you know wellness and you know TV Iyanla versus book Iyanla, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like that is that book is a gem. Mm-hmm. That book is a gem. It is uh, for me. It's always a reference point. It's something I always go back to. So the Bible, one day my soul just opened up, and then from there, there's not like a single book that I can say this is foundational. I will say that there are some foundational writers that need to be read. I think. We need to read Alice Walker. You need to make sure to have those Alice Walker books because I read the I read um, the Color Purple, and I know why the Cage Bird sings like at the same time. I was like ten or eleven reading those books, and it it completely changed my outlook on so many things. And I was just like, you know, one. I realized how commonplace some of the abuse that we suffered mm-hmm. was and how long it had happened. Then when I realized that this was really a like biographical, you know, one was an autobiography and the other one was a biographical account, I was like, you know, these are things that we need to be talking about. Like like these are things that, that need to be said. And now I like even at ten and eleven I felt empowered to finally start having necessary conversations with my family. But it was because I discovered those books and then I no longer felt alone. But both of those women did have, Alice Walker has done so much work through her books that even now, like um, I read By the Light of My Father's Smile and I was able to pull so much from that book and I was just like, like the truth is there. When you talk about them, you know, bringing voice like giving voice and telling mm-hmm. our stories mm-hmm. like you have Alice to walk as a literary auntie so, <laughs> definitely so. and then of course tony morrison is a literary yes. mother and i mean maya angelo um i think one of the first moments of real vulnerability i had when we were doing with chat with the aunties was talking about maya angelo mm-hmm. because i i just there's there's this realization that if maya angelo could be ellipses then i can be ellipses mm-hmm. because she not only did she lose a whole baby but like she was a <laughs> sex worker like she was so many other she things. owned it mm-hmm. she owned it mm-hmm. she unapologetically mm-hmm. and i'm like man. very much unapologetically I'm very like, much like this is what i did and, and then this, this is what i did and here right. i am right and right. Then i'm I doing loved, this yes. i loved um i loved watching her journey just because yeah. She reminded us that we could be all and we could also be nothing or feel like we're nothing Mm -hmm. and then still come back and be all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so Alice Walker, Maya Angelou, uh, Toni Morrison, um, gosh, I mean, it's Zora. Zora. You can't have this conversation (laughs) with, you cannot have this conversation without talking about Zora Neale Hurston. Um, because again, when it comes to storytelling, because she was an ethnographer, so much historical data is contained exactly. in her books, and it's like there are people out here who don't 
know that there were whole incorporated black cities like we had our mm-hmm. own like you, you people talk about black wall street and again it's like oh there's this new thing like you know right. I just by the block. Right. I just, the block. Like, but we've had wealth mm-hmm. we've had our own neighborhoods again part we of what we gave up for mm-hmm. for integration and this is so funny because we're in florida i went to zora fest a couple of years ago and realize that Eatonville is literally on the other side of Orlando. Like literally you pass by and it's like, oh, this is Eatonville. Like like this whole time, like I was thinking it was like somewhere in the middle of the state, so far off from me. And I'm like, it's two and a half hours up the road. You know what I'm saying? And it's like there's still so much history contained there. So yeah, you can't have the conversation without talking about Zora Nilhurst. She's the historian. Yeah. She um also was kind of where I started to See how um, hoodoo was so just intertwined into our lives yes. mm-hmm. without even mm-hmm. realizing because we didn't give it a name. So we also have to bring Gloria Naylor into this conversation yes. because for so many people, Gloria Naylor begins and ends with the women of Brewster Place. But you've got to read Lyndon mm-hmm. Hills, you've got yes. to read Mama Day, like you've got to read the those men books of to, Brewster Place. to understand how the magic is woven into our community. So you know, whether you want to learn, uh, whether you want to uh, activate conversations a- around generational trauma, whether you want to uh, learn more about about herbs, about agriculture, like whatever you want is going to be contained in those pages of the book, even if you want to learn magic. So I'm going to I'm going to say hands down. Uh, go to black women writers make sure that those are in your library your personal library because when when they burn it down because it's inevitable (laughs) when they burn it down not if when um those are going to be some of the first things they go and i'll I'll add to that when you were talking about the sankofa moments Mm -hmm. earlier even with that right we only have Zora Neale Hurston in the way that we have Zora Neale Hurston because um, I think Alice it was Alice Walker. Walker did her dissertation mm-hmm. and her ma- or her master's thesis on Zora Neale Hurston. And, and she had been she long gone. Right, right. And, and, and that was an excavation, yeah. right? And, and getting her books back into circulation, right? Yeah. The publications that are published after in the 80s and 90s up until now are all the ones that Alice Walker had to bring back into the mainstream. Yeah. And then I think even she and Toni Morrison had gotten together to just get a headstone yeah. um, for Zora Neale Hurston. Just, you know, so bringing that work that had been buried because, you know, people of her time saw her as controversial. You know, we, we've talked about the letters between Zora Neale Hurston and these other black writers who were saying, well, <laughs> hey, you know, you're going to get this person to do this for you and you're going to let them do this. And, you know, those, all those conversations just about the difficulty of being an artist in that time and age and the relative freedom that we have now to be an artist, a writer, a creator, um, which, you know, they probably could have only dreamt of at that time. Yeah. Without having, um, without having a subsidy. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the, that was one of the things that really struck me, um, in the way forward is with the broken heart. Alice Walker says that, Langston Hughes, when she got married to her husband, said, oh, so you married your... Your benefactor. Yeah. But he, I think he called him a subsidy. Like you, <laughs> like, you married your subsidy. But that really hit me because I was like... And sometimes, for some of us, that really is how it is. Like, like you... 
you have to find the person who's going to be able to support the work when the work is not paying the bills mm -hmm. so that you're not a starving artist. And support you when you are in those low moments where mm -hmm. you're questioning, like I said earlier, your ministry yeah. and am I in the right, going in the right direction. It's important to be connected and soul tied to people that can feed you yes. because soul ties are like umbilical cords. Yes. We need the food from each other. We need yeah. that um, that jolt, that kick sometimes. It's certain levels of the nurturing. of love, the nurturing, um, sometimes just the space holding yeah. that we need in these communal relationships. And I love seeing our community gather more closely together. I love seeing us do things like this and I appreciate you ladies so much for being a part of this and for helping That's to rejolt this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Um, for me, some of the books were really the same authors. I, mm. I think that every um, young black girl that's introduced to Zora, Alice, Miss Maya, Miss Tony mm -hmm. are all um, changed in some way at an early the earlier, yeah. you know, the better. But I also see that with us um, doing all this healing work, that the generations that are coming behind us are going to be more comfortable in doing their work. And also, they're going to have those firsthand accounts on how to do the work. I did a post about how we didn't realize that our parents uh, um, were doing their work mm -hmm. um, on themselves mm -hmm. when we were, were kids. Us. I remember While that. They I were raising that. We had a conversation about that. And yeah. I was just like, yeah, you know, sometimes we don't give enough credit to the fact that they were works in progress too, and we just yeah. kind of look like, dang, my childhood was missing this, or, mm -hmm. you know, I went through that. Because they don't tell us. Because they, they say, right. I've got some things to work on. They say, I'm the boss and I'm in charge. And because I'm said the authority so. and you got to do because like, Right. So it's like, well, if they had told us, hey, I'm working on some things, maybe we yeah. could have said, oh, mom's working on some things. Let me go check with grandma, but you know, or something like that. That's but, yeah. one of the benefits that this generation has, right? Mm -hmm. Our children. Our, our born flawed. children and our bonded <laughs> children, we are able to have those very mm -hmm. open and honest conversations mm -hmm. with them and say, you know, I'm working through this or we're working through this together. Like mm -hmm. it's not just the, di the dynamic has shifted between, you know, I'm an adult and I have to take care of things and keep it from the kids to we're a family and we're in right. this together and what I do affects you and what you do affects me. So let's sit down and have conversations about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And teaching so. um, healthy ways of navigating. coming back, mm -hmm. navigating, fixing, mm -hmm. you know, letting him know it's okay to talk about these things, yeah. you know, being able to say, Oh, we're going to call in this family therapist or we're going to call in a trusted family friend yeah. or we're going to, you know, it's not going to be this isolated thing. That, or we're just going to sit you know, at the dinner table and check in, boundary. right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. we're going to sit at the dinner table and we're going to do high low and we're going to figure out, okay, well, what's, what was going on with your low? And where, how are you now? And do you need support? And what does support look like? You know what I'm saying? It's not mm -hmm. always, it's not always complicated. Sometimes it's as simple as bringing back the old ways, like mm -hmm. sitting down and having dinner having at the table <laughs> without any TV, without any technology, and just mm -hmm. having conversations and interacting. Mm -hmm. Asking and listening. Mm -hmm. Thank mm -hmm. you, ladies, so, so, so much. Thank you for the opportunity, because I, too, feel 
that resurgence. I'm like, yes, these conversations are super <laughs> we important. Need them. And, and we, we need the aunties because, quite honestly, um, for people like myself, I was, you know, I grew up isolated to only Christianity. So a lot of the, it was very, um, it was very much like the eyes were always watching. So I wasn't able to really get the secular mm -hmm. experiences that weren't um, looked at as spiritual. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate this because I feel, and why I started this podcast, because I'm still in my journey of growing and that's why I'm not the spiritual auntie. I'm the spiritual bestie because as I get stuff, it's like, girl, check this out. You need to listen to this. Oh, bro, you need to check this out. You know, this is what I found out from the aunties. So um, we really appreciate you. And I want to let you all know that you are needed. You are valued in the community because although sometimes there are a lot of people that are lookers and they don't comment or they don't um, say anything, but it's important because the work that we put out now will still be somewhere. Yeah. And it might have to be excavated, but we don't, you know, that's not for us to determine right. how it's going to get into the hands of the person that needs it. Right. So thank you. How can people find you and locate you when they want to contact you or follow you or check out some of the other things that you have going on? I'm Purple Hair and Converse on everything, on any platform you look. So I'm on Tumblr, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, Purple Hair and Converse. Um, or Malika Salam. Look up either one and you'll find <laughs> me. I'm there um, doing the work and doing the work that comes from the work. Yeah, yeah and um, for me, I am the Lux Libra on Instagram, Facebook. Tumblr, Twitter, all those places, and then um, for non-spiritual coaching, you know, the, that kind of work, professional, the other profession, um, it's just my name, Giovanni Dorch. Okay. Well, thank you, ladies, again, and thank you all for listening. I will see you guys on the next episode of Real Talk with the Spiritual Bestie. Peace.